All right, again, if anyone is uh, just joining us, we are combining podcasts today. We are combining the uh, Morning Devotion podcast, and we are combining that with the Bunyan of Brooklyn podcast. We're going to read a couple of psalms this morning to get started. Of course, we will start our time in a word of prayer. And then we're going to move on to uh, a pastor's sketches, a pastor's sketches by Ichabod Spencer. And uh, this is episode six of the Bunyan of Brooklyn podcast. And today we're going to read two stories. The first one, very short, only a page, only about a page long called The Whole Heart. But yet there are some things to glean from that and I will be commenting. And then a longer story, about 10 pages, uh, called The Welsh Woman and Her Tenant. And uh, that story I probably could have just dipped in yellow highlighter. <laughs> just dip the whole story uh, in there because there is so much, so much for us to gain uh, from that story. And uh, what we see uh, in that story, it goes again, it goes hand in hand with what uh, Maria asked me via email uh, over the weekend. And that is if you have a relatively short time, there is a way that you can communicate the gospel succinctly. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some tips uh, for how to do that uh, today as we, we are reading the story. So, oh, and uh, uh, let's see. On a scale of uh, one to five Kleenex, one to five Kleenex, uh, the second story I read today is probably going to be a three to four Kleenex story. So be aware. Um, I. I I found myself uh, a couple of times while reading the story saying, I'm not crying, you're crying. And uh, so it's a, it's a beautiful story, a lovely story. And I think you're, I think you're going to be very encouraged uh, by that. So, all right. All right, well, let's, uh, let's get started. Uh, we are going to be uh, a little more diligent to, to start on time. And, uh, of course, we will enjoy some fellowship. And, and uh, if there are questions, I will answer those. Uh, but I want to get to it because, again, this is a live uh, podcast of the Bunyan of Brooklyn podcast. And I'm also going to be doing an audio version. And uh, so I'm going to have to do some editing of this later on. And so a lot of work. It's going to be a lot more work um, doing our morning devotions here through the end of the year. Because I've, I've got to read the stories from a pastor sketches. Got to formulate uh, some notes, make some notes in the book. And. Uh, and I'm going to have to do that each day uh, before uh, being with you all the following morning. So would uh, appreciate your prayers in that. All right. We're going to begin this morning by reading a couple of psalms. And we're going to do that. We're going to read two or three psalms, uh, two or three psalms each day. And, of course, uh, since we have finished reading the Bible for 2022, uh, we're going to begin in Psalm chapter 1, Psalm 1, Psalm 1, Psalm 1. And if anyone who uh, has been tuning in to the Bunyan of Brooklyn podcast but doesn't tune in to morning devotions, uh, come the start of the new year, we'll begin season 7, year 7 of the morning devotion podcast, morning devotion broadcast, where we get together, uh, me and my friends from all around the world, to read the Word of God cover to cover, Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. I read it aloud, 
and uh, we read the entire Bible in a year. So we have just finished our sixth year of reading the entire Bible aloud together, praise God. And we will begin uh, our seventh year, January 1. Uh, we get together Monday through Saturday at uh, 7 a.m. Central Time. Uh, but for Tuesday, Tuesday we meet at 8 a.m. Central Time to accommodate the men's Bible study uh, in my church. And I will be leading that study in January, uh, So, so which is wonderful. Glad to get the opportunity to do that. We're in Proverbs. We're in Proverbs 16. We're going verse by verse. We've been in Proverbs now for a few years, going verse by verse through that wonderful book. And so I will be tasked with leading the study on Tuesday morning in the month of January. So, so if you haven't joined us before for morning devotions, I hope you'll consider doing that. Uh, if you are inconsistent in your reading of God's Word, uh, let us help with that. It, it has helped many of us by getting together every morning to read the Word of God aloud. Uh, and, uh, and again, we're rejoicing that we just finished our sixth year of reading the Bible together. So for the month of December, we're going to read, uh, continue reading the Word of God, uh, just to make sure we're reading every day. We're going to read two or three Psalms together each day through December. And I'm going to host live editions of the Bunyan of Brooklyn podcast, where I read from Pastor Spencer's classic work of Pastor's Sketches. All right, David, good morning. I don't think I've missed Eunice. Good afternoon. I think I've got everybody who's in the chat room. All right, let's begin our time in a word of prayer and let's get started. Father, we are so thankful that we can gather together today to read your word yet again. Father, help us to feed on your word today. Lord, we do ask that you would give us eyes to see the text, ears to hear the text, minds to understand the text, and hearts willing to obey the text that we read today. Use your word, Father, to minister to our hearts and our minds. And I pray, Father, that you would receive this as worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Now, uh, for those of you who might be new, uh, we are reading this year in uh, 2022 from the Legacy Standard Bible, and we will be doing that again in 2023. Uh, the Legacy Standard Bible, the LSB, is a new translation published at the end of 2022 by the men of the Master's Seminary, led by Pastor John MacArthur. It is basically an update of the NASB translation of God's Word with a couple of uh, key changes. One is the appropriate use of the name of God, Yahweh, wherever the text would warrant that, and uh, translating the Greek word doulos as it should be translated, not as servant or bondservant, but as slave. And then there are some some slight uh, uh, some uh, slight revisions, uh, updates along the way as well. Uh, but that's what we're reading. We're reading out the Legacy Standard Bible. If you uh, join us on uh, the morning devotion broadcast and you do not have your own copy of that Bible, uh, simply open up a second window on your computer and uh, type in read, R-E-A-D dot L-S-Bible dot O-R-G, read dot L-S-Bible dot O-R-G. Uh, when that page comes up, simply type the chapter we are in in the search window there, search bar there in the middle of the page. 
That'll bring up the text, follow along as we read. And when we get to the end of the chapter, simply click on the right arrow at the bottom of the page and that'll move you along to the next one. So if you're doing that today, simply type Psalm, no S. Psalms is the name of the book. Uh, each chapter is a Psalm, singular. Type Psalm 1 in that window. Uh, that'll bring up the text. Follow along as we read. Click on the right arrow at the bottom of the page. And that'll take you, of course, to Psalm 2. All right. Let's begin. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O king, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And Psalm 3, Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son. O Yahweh, how my adversaries have become many. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was calling to Yahweh with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for Yahweh sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousand of people who all around have set themselves against me. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. All right. So that's where we will stop today. We will pick up uh, tomorrow in Psalm chapter 4. Psalm chapter 4. Now, it's time to turn our attention to Ichabod Spencer's book. You can get this for yourself uh, through Amazon and, and other places where Good books like this are sold. And it's called A Pastor's Sketches, Conversations with Anxious Souls Concerning the Way of Salvation, written by Ichabod Spencer, who was affectionately known as the Bunyan of Brooklyn. He was a pastor of a large church in Brooklyn, New York, in the mid-19th century. 
And uh, we're going to begin today with our reading by reading a very short sketch, very short story, only a page long, but there are a couple of things we can glean from it. So again, the title of this story is The Whole Heart. In the early part of my ministry, I was requested by a clergyman to attend a meeting for religious inquiry and converse with the young men who were there. I spoke to each one separately. Nothing occurred to impress the circumstances, particularly on my memory. 20 years afterward, I met with a clergyman who called up my recollection of that meeting. Said he, I was there and you spoke to me. Do you remember what you said? I had no recollection of the particulars. Well, I have, he said, and I will tell you how it was. I have long wanted to tell you. You asked me if I was seeking the Lord, and I told you that I was trying to. You asked me if my trying had done me any good, and I answered that I did not know that it had. You told me then that you could tell me the reason why it had not. The reason was that I had sought with only a part of my heart. He went on to say to me, You must search with all your heart, not half of it. Ye shall seek me, and ye shall find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. I wondered you said that. I thought I was seeking with all my heart, but this idea with all your heart remained with me. I cannot get rid of it. And finally, I found out that this was exactly my difficulty. I had been seeking for months but with a part of my heart only. Your words, all your heart, all your heart, led me into the knowledge of my character and into the right way. I have often thought of that meeting and wondered that you should know me so well. That circumstance has since been of great use to me in conversing with anxious inquirers. Ministers must sometimes draw their bow at a venture, but it is better to take aim. There are some scripture arrows which we should always have in our quiver because they are sure to hit. They will at least ring upon the harness if they do not penetrate the joints. They will alarm if they do not kill. After we have toiled all night and taken nothing, if we cast our net on the right side of the ship, it will not come in empty. There is but one way to Christ. Faith saves. The faith of the whole heart. Jesus save me or I die. That's it. Again, I told you it was only about a page in length, but there are a couple of things I, I want to draw from this. I'm going to go back and repeat a couple of things that Pastor Spencer said. Pastor Spencer said, he wrote, uh, actually, uh, when I'm, this quote begins with, uh, with uh, the young man who is now a pastor recounting to Pastor Spencer, what Pastor Spencer had told him. You told me then that you could tell me the reason why it had not. The reason was that I had sought with only a part of my heart. He went on to say to me, you must search with all your heart, not half of it. Ye shall seek me and ye shall find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. So, Pastor Spencer immediately recognized the problem with this young man. And that comes with experience, years of pastoral ministry, years of evangelistic ministry, uh, that kind of, of wisdom and discernment to be able to, 
to pick up on something that someone is saying, um, something even in the inflection in their voice when they're saying something, that that comes with experience. Now, you might hear that and go, oh, well, I'm out. I'm out the door. I'll never be able to do that. Well, maybe not right away, but how about you start by going out and getting some experience by talking to anxious inquirers, uh, by going out and talking to those who know they're lost and, and are in need of the Savior. But something that uh, Pastor Spencer did, and again, Pastor Spencer had very little time uh, to talk to talk with this person. And, uh, and in, in doing so, he quoted scripture that directly went to the heart of the problem. You shall seek me and you shall find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Now, memorization of scripture is important. If you're not engaged in scripture memory, uh, you should be engaged in that. You should, you should be uh, writing the word of God on your own heart, on your own mind, so that's at the tip of your tongue whenever you need it. Now, some people do this very easily. They have great recall. Uh, particularly the younger you are, uh, the better you are at things like memorizing things and learning new languages. And the older you get and the grayer your gray matter gets, that does become a little more difficult, but not impossible. And so I have, I have a good deal of scripture memorized because I use scripture so much in my, in my conversations. Memorization is important. But what is more important than memorizing scripture is knowing the scripture. Uh, we have opportunity in our church every Sunday evening for our Sunday evening gathering of uh, our time of prayer and then coming to the Lord's table on uh, Sunday evenings. Uh, our pastor uh, each Sunday uh, gives a, uh, a passage of scripture or a verse of scripture uh, encouraging the church family to memorize that. And, and uh, toward the beginning of our time together on Sunday evening, he gives opportunity for uh, members of the church family, whether believer or you know unbelieving children uh, of members of the church family, uh, to stand up and to recite the verse. And and uh, and people do, young, young and and old alike, saved and unsaved alike. But there are a lot of uh, people, particularly young people who are involved in something like Awana, which is uh, which is a good program. Certainly, it's it's founded on the Word of God, and and uh, children who participate in that program and and uh, follow it through the years memorize hundreds of of verses of Scripture along the way. There is the Bible B, which is basically a a competition for young people on Scripture memorization. Uh, lots of uh, lots of young people memorize a lot of scripture, um, but many of them are doing that with an unsaved heart. Many of them are doing that with a mind that is not renewed. They are they are simply memorizing words and regurgitating words. It's as important as it is to memorize scripture. It is just as important, even more important, to know what the scripture means to know what it is that you're memorizing, to actually believe what you're memorizing in your heart, uh, being able to understand with your mind and obey with your heart. And so while I want to encourage you to memorize scripture, I want to encourage you not to simply memorize it for memorization's sake, 
but so that you can know it and and also apply it. And then, see, my commentary is longer than the story itself this morning. Then uh, Spencer closes this brief sketch with these words. There are some scripture arrows which we should always have in our quiver because they are sure to hit. They will at least ring up the harness if they do not penetrate the joints. They will alarm if they do not, if they do not kill. Now, in, in Spencer's brief interaction with this young man who 20 years later is a pastor himself, he brought to bear scripture that was important for the need of the moment. He didn't communicate the entirety of the gospel with that young man, but seeds were scattered. And a very important seed at that, that would subsequently penetrate what would prove to be good soil. Uh, again, Spencer had a command of the scripture, knew what verse to bring to bear based on what he was hearing. All scripture is profitable, the word of God tells us, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, all of it is profitable. Uh, when it comes to evangelism, however, memorize and know what scripture you will ultimately use. Memorize and know what scripture you will use in your evangelism efforts. All right. The next story is titled The Welsh Woman and Her Tenant. Now, I gave this a three to four uh, Kleenex rating uh, on this story, and uh, maybe I'm just a softy and a mushy, a mushy guy. I don't know, but uh, this is this is quite a story, and I uh, hope it lives. I, I think it'll live to the buildup I'm giving it. It's titled The Welsh Woman and Her Tenant, and here's what it says. A man who was entirely a stranger to me and whose appearance convinced me he was poor and whose address showed that he was not very familiar with the subject of religion called upon me one morning and with some agitation, agitation desired me to go to a distant street to see his wife who was sick. On making some inquiries, I learned that his wife had consumption, was not expected to live many days had not expressed any desire to see me, but that he had come for me at the request of an aged, aged Welsh woman who lived in the same house. I immediately went to the place he described. I found the woman apparently in the last stage of her fatal malady. She was an interesting young woman of about 20 years of age and had been married a little more than a year. All the appearance of her room was indicative of poverty though everything manifested the most perfect neatness. She was bolstered up upon her bed, her face pale, with a bright red spot in the center of each cheek. She appeared exceedingly weak, while her frequent cough seemed to be tearing her to pieces. Her condition affected me. Manifestly, her youth and beauty were destined to an early grave. She must soon leave the world, and how tender and terrible the thought that she might still be unprepared for a happier one. As I told her who I was and why I had come there, she offered me her hand with a ready and easy politeness, and yet with a manifest embarrassment of feeling which she evidently struggled to conceal. I have seldom seen a more perfectly beautiful woman. Her frame was delicate, her complexion clear and white, her countenance indicative of a more than ordinary degree of 
intelligence and amiability. And as she lifted her languid eyes upon me, I could not but feel in an instant that I was in the presence of an uncommon woman. I felt her feverish pulse which was rapidly beating and expressing my sorrow at finding her so ill, she said to me, speaking with some difficulty, you find me in very humble circumstances, sir. Yes, said I, you seem very sick. We have not always been so straitened as we are now, said she. We lived very comfortably before I was sick, but I am not able to do anything now. And I am ashamed to have you find me with my room and all things in such a state, casting a look about the room. Once I could have seen you in a more inviting place, but, sir, we are now very poor and cannot live as we used to. My situation is very humbled, indeed. You have no occasion to be ashamed, said I. Your room is very neat, and if you are in wanting of anything, it will give me pleasure to aid you to whatever you need. Oh, sir, I, I am not in want of anything now. I am too sick to need anything more than the old lady can do for me, and she is very kind. And who is the old lady? I asked. Mrs. Williams, said she, in whose house we have lived since ours was sold. The woman that wanted me to have you come, come and see me. She has been talking to me about religion. She is a Welsh woman, and she has read to me in the Bible, but I cannot understand it. And did you wish to have me come and see you? No. Yes, I am willing to see you, but, but I am in such a place here. M my room, my dear friend, said I, do not think of such things at all. You have something of more moment to think of. You are very sick. Do you expect to ever get well? No, sir, they, they tell me I shall not. Do you feel prepared to die? Uh, I do not know. What, I do not know what that preparation means. And it is too late now for me to do anything about it. I am too far gone. No, madam, you are not. God is infinitely merciful and you may be saved. Have you been praying to him to save you? I never prayed. Indeed, sir, I never thought of religion till I was sick and the old lady talked to me. But I cannot understand her. I have never read the Bible. I never was inside of a church in my life. Nobody ever asked me to go or told me I ought to. I do not think of religion. I just lived to enjoy myself as well as I could. My aunt, who, who took me when my mother died, never went to church and, and never said anything to me about religion. So I lived as she allowed me to from the time I was three years old. I want to pause there for just a moment. And then when we pick up again, this young dying lady uh, will continue with her thoughts. But what is described here by this young lady about her own, her own condition, her own spiritual condition, is what we see in millennials today. They cannot understand the things of God. They've never read a Bible. They've never been inside a church. We live in probably the most unchurched, unreligious, non-religious, in a biblical sense of the word, 
time in history right now. Now everybody is religious. Everyone is religious. The atheist is religious. The agnostic is religious. They simply worship the man or woman they see in the mirror. Make no mistake at all. Atheism is a religion. Agnosticism is a religion. It is simply the worship of the God of self. But this young lady who lived and died uh, in the mid-19th century uh, is very much like the young people of this current generation. They've never read a Bible. They've never been inside a church. Their parents weren't churched people. Their relatives weren't church people. No Christian bothered to ask them to come to church. Now the young lady continues. I had property, enough for everything I, I wanted then, and after I left school about four years ago, I had nothing to do but to go to parties and dances and attend to my dress and read till I was married. Since that, we have had trouble. My husband, I suppose, did not understand things in our country very well. He mortgaged my house, and in a little while it was sold, and we were obliged to leave it and come here. What did you read? said I. Oh, I read novels the most of the time. Sometimes I read other books, but not much, except some history and biography. Did you never read the Bible? No, sir. Have you got a Bible? No, sir. Again, a picture of the young people of today's generation. The young lady continues. No, sir. The, the old lady has got one, which she brings to me, but I am too weak to read it. It is a large book, and I shall not live long enough to read it. You need not read it, said I, but now suffer me to talk to you plainly. You are very sick. You may not live long. Will you give your attention to religion as well as you can in your weak state and aim to get ready to die? I would, sir, if I had time, but I do not. I do not know anything at all about religion, and it would do me no good to try now when I have so little time left. You have time enough left. Do you think so, sir? I know you have, madam. She turned her eyes upon me imploringly and yet despondingly. And with a voice trembling with emotion, she said to me, speaking slowly and with difficulty, Sir, I cannot believe that. I have never begun to learn religion. I lived only for my present enjoyment till I was married, and since that, after my husband failed, all I have thought of was to save some little of my property if I could, so as not to be a burden to other people. And now there cannot be time enough left for me to begin with religion and go all the way through. There is time enough, said I. Perceiving that she was already exhausted by her efforts to speak, I told her to, to rest for a few minutes, and I would see her again. I, I went into another room to see the old lady, as she called her, whom I found to be a pious Welsh woman, who had rented a part of her house to the sick woman's husband some months before, and who now devoted herself to take care of the poor sufferer. The tenant had squandered all his wife's property, and now, during her sickness, continued his dissipation paying little attention to his dying wife. If he had ever had a heart, rum had destroyed it. She is a good creature, said the Welsh woman, all but religion. 
When she was well, she was very kind to me. Though she was a lady and had fine clothes, she was not ashamed to come and sit with me an hour at a time and talk with me and try to make me happy. For I am a poor, lone widow, 70 years old, and all my children are dead. When I told her how it was with me that I had nothing to live upon but the rent I got for the rooms of my house, and she found out, I did not tell her of it, that her husband did not pay the rent any longer, she sold her rings and some of her clothes and brought me the money, poor thing, and, and told me to take it. I did not know at first that she sold her rings and her clothes to get it, and when I asked her how she got it and she told me, I said to her, I would not have it. It would burn my fingers if I took it, and the rust of it would eat my flesh as it were fire and be a canker in my heart and be a swift witness against me in the day of the great God, our Savior. So I gave it back to her, but she would not take it. She laid it down there, pointing to it with her finger on the mantelpiece. It is five weeks yesterday, and there it has been ever since. I cannot touch it. I never will touch it unless I am forced to take it to buy her a coffin. Christ Jesus would not have taken the price of a lady's rings and clothes in such a case, and it is not for the like of me to do it. Poor thing! She will soon die, and then she will want rings and clothes no longer. I didn't plan on this, but I want to pause here for just for just a second. The older Welsh woman's statement reminds me of the story in the Bible where the where the poor widow gave her last two cents to the treasury and uh, and Jesus is sitting there watching her do it and so often i hear christians and 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 christian pastors use that story to talk about sacrificial giving but that story is not about sacrificial giving it's an indictment on at the time the jewish religious system that would take the last two cents of a poor widow and expect her to put it all in the treasury. All right, continuing with uh, the Welsh woman's words. Oh, sir, if I could only think she would wear robes of glory in heaven, I would not weep so. But I am afraid it is all too late for her now. Religion is a hard business for a poor, sick sinner. And her husband would not go for you the week before last, nor last week. He never went till this morning. When I told him as I was a, a living woman, he never should enter the house tonight. He should sleep in the street if he did not bring you here before the clock struck 12. I want you to pray for her. There is no telling what God may do. Maybe he will send suddenly, but, but I cannot tell her the way. I have tried. I tried hard, but poor thing, she said she could not understand me. And then I could do nothing but come to my room and weep for her and go to prayer and then weep again. I am glad you have come. And now don't leave her till you have prayed and got a blessing if it is not too late. All right, let me uh, let me pause for a moment here and and kick an undesirable out of the chat room. Hate to waste the time doing this, but there we go. All right. Now, Pastor Spencer speaking, I have seldom heard eloquence surpassing that of the old lady. 
Some of her expressions were singular, but they seemed to have in them the majesty and tenderness of both nature and religion. I borrowed the old lady's Bible and returned to the sick woman's room. Seating myself by the side of her bed, I told her I did not wish her to talk, for it wearied her. But I wanted she should listen to me without saying a word. Only if she did not understand me, she might say so, and I would explain myself. Can I understand? said she with a look of mingled earnestness and despair. Certainly you can. Religion is all simple and easy if one desires to know it. And if you do not understand me, it is my fault, not yours. And now, my dear child, listen to me a little while. I will not be long. But first allow me to pray with you for a single minute. I want to pause here. What Spencer says here is very, very important. And if you do not understand me, speaking to this unbelieving, dying young woman, and if you do not understand me, it is my fault, not yours. Now, the unbeliever cannot understand that which is spiritual because it is spiritually appraised. And they are dead in their sins. That's clear in Scripture. But if the Holy Spirit is working on that person, if they are numbered among God's elect and have not yet been saved, uh, the soil's going to be there to receive the seed. And so they will be able to understand to the extent the Holy Spirit gives them uh, the ability. But in the midst of that conversation, if we're talking to an unbeliever and the unbeliever doesn't understand what we're saying, and, and they're not just throwing up the, hey, I don't get it, I don't understand, as some kind of, of wall because they don't want to have the conversation. But if they are genuinely saying to you, look, I, I, I'm not picking up what you're putting down. I'm not understanding what you're saying. The fault is not theirs. The fault is yours. The fault is mine. Sometimes, and I've seen it happen, and in earlier years, maybe I did it myself. I probably did it too. But Christians, so impressed with their own piety, so impressed with their own scripture knowledge, so impressed with their own multi-syllable theological terms and the understanding of those, will speak in ways that unbelievers can't understand. They, uh, they don't understand what definite atonement is. They don't. They don't understand what you mean by the doctrines of grace. They don't. They don't understand the word repentance. It needs to be explained to them. And so we need to know the gospel well enough that we can make a child understand it. We need to know the gospel well enough that we can make a child understand it. So if you're having a conversation with someone and they don't understand what you're saying, and this person truly wants to understand, they truly want to know, you, you can discern that. You know if that's the conversation you're having. If the person you're talking to doesn't understand what you're saying, the only one you should be frustrated with is yourself. And so you should slow down. And without being condescending to the person in front of you, you should speak to them as if you're speaking to a child that doesn't know anything, particularly in the day and age that we live today, where most people 
have never read the Bible, have never been in the church, have never been in the, heard a sermon, have not been around Christians, have no Christians in their family. They're utterly and completely unreligious, irreligious. They know nothing about nothing. Then we need to be patient, loving and kind. And we need to speak in ways that people can understand. And the better you know the gospel, the better you know the truth of scripture, the easier it's going to be for you to break that down into terms and ideas that a biblically uneducated unbeliever will be able to understand. And, and I made sure to preface it and emphasize biblically uneducated because professors at universities are biblically uneducated. They... Uh, they, their IQ might be 20, 30 points higher than yours. But when it comes to the things of God's word, when it comes to the things of salvation, they're a two-year-old. And so while not being condescending, while, uh, while not being arrogant, while not being rude in any way, we need to be able to break down the truths of the gospel, weighty truths of the gospel in ways that unbelievers can understand if they were a child. Continuing with Pastor Spencer. And now, my dear child, listen to me a little while. I will not be long, but first allow me to pray with you for a single minute. After prayer, I took the Bible and told her it was God's word given to us to teach us the way of eternal life and happiness beyond the grave, that it taught all I knew or needed to know about salvation, that though it was a large book and contained many things which might be profitable to her under other circumstances, yet all that she needed to think of just now was embraced in a few ideas, which were easy to be understood. And I wanted her to listen to them and try to understand them. I will, sir, said she, as well as I can. Hear what God says then, said I. And what we're about to embark on, friends, is a very succinct, simple gospel presentation uh, that, that can be made understandable to the simplest of unbelievers. Spencer says, the first thing is that we are sinners. I explained sin. I explained the law which it transgressed, how it is holy, just, and good, and we have broken it. Because we have not loved the Lord our God with all our heart and our neighbors as ourselves. No, I have never loved him, said she. I dwelt upon our sin as guilt and alienation from God, explained how sinners are worldly, proud, selfish, and read the texts as proofs and explanations. Okay, I want to pause again. I told you, look, I could have just dipped this story in yellow highlighter. There's so much here. I read the texts, Spencer says. I read the texts as proofs and explanations. Okay. This Bible won't fit in my pocket. And for those of you who are listening to the audio version, you can't see the full-size Legacy Standard Bible in my hand. But this Bible will not fit in my pocket. It's not a convenient size to carry with me wherever I go. But I have several Bibles. I'm looking around on my shelf right now uh, for a small... Oh, there it is. I have much smaller Bibles, like the one I'm holding now. 
that I can carry with me wherever I go. It's not much bigger than my cell phone. It'll fit in my pocket, certainly comfortably in my hand. My friends, if you're not good at memorizing scripture, you've tried, but it's just difficult for you, don't give up. Don't be embarrassed. Have a Bible with you. Have a Bible with you. Oh, know where to go in your Bible for certain texts. I'll talk about that a little more here soon. And, and be able to show the text to the person you're talking to. You don't have to memorize. Again, I'm not, I'm not suggesting we don't memorize Scripture. We should memorize Scripture. But highlight your Bible. Underline verses in your Bible. Have a small, compact Bible with you. Carry it with you wherever you go so that when you have an opportunity to communicate the gospel to someone, you don't have to miss the opportunity because you're embarrassed because you haven't memorized enough Scripture. Take the Word of God with you. Know where to find the verses in your Bible. Underline them and let the person read them for themselves. Or read them to, read the verses to them. Again, back to Spencer. I dwelt upon our sin as guilt and alienation from God, explained how sinners are worldly, proud, selfish, and, and read the text as proofs and explanations. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God. In short, that man is in himself a lost sinner. God is angry with him, and he has a wicked heart. Said she, that seems strange to me. I wish I had known it before. No one, no one had ever told this poor girl she's a sinner. And if you think that the people in this world today, particularly among the young, particularly among 20-year-olds like this dying young woman, if you think they know what a sinner is or that they're sinners, you're wrong. They need it explained to them. And that's your job, Christian. That's my job. Back to Spencer. The second thing is that just such sinners may be saved because Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. I read from the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his own son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us all from all sin. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. The Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. You see, therefore, that sinners can be saved. Christ died for them. Will he save me? She said. I hope he will. But listen. The third thing is that lost sinners will be saved by Christ if they repent of sin and believe in him. I continued to select text and read them to her. God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. As I read such passages, turning over the leaves of the book, 
As I stood by her bedside, her eyes followed the turning leaves, and she gazed upon the book in astonishment. At times, when repeating a peculiar text, my eyes rested on her face instead of the book, and then she would ask, Is that in God's word? I found it best, therefore, just to look on the book and read slowly and deliberately. The fourth thing is that we need the aid of the Holy Spirit to renew our hearts and bring us to faith and repentance. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. No man can come unto me except the Father which sent me draw him. In me is thy help. Let him take hold on my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Man is helpless without the Holy Spirit. The last thing is that all this salvation is freely offered to us now, today, and it is our duty and interest to accept it on the spot, and just as we are, undone sinners. Hear, and your soul shall live. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. If ye being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Behold. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that is athirst come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Now, my dear child, this is all. Only these five things. I will now leave you for an hour to rest, and then I will be back to see you. So here are the five, here are the five things that, that Spencer pointed out to this dying young woman, literally on her deathbed, days, maybe hours away from death, an utterly uneducated woman regarding the Bible. She was well-schooled but had no education whatsoever regarding the Bible, here are the five things that he pointed out to her. The first, that we are sinners. The second, that just such sinners may be saved because Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost. The third, that lost sinners will be saved by Christ if they repent of sin and believe in him. The fourth, that we need the aid of the Holy Spirit to renew our hearts and bring us to faith and repentance. We, a person must be born again. And the fifth, that all this salvation is freely offered to us now, today. And it is our duty and interest to accept it on the spot and just as we are undone sinners. Christian, you could do that. You could point out those five things. And in fact, um, it, it's going to be difficult uh, to do it right away, but my I was hoping to do it by today, but there just wasn't enough time. I'm going to take the five things that Spencer pointed out to this dying young woman. And then I'm going to look up all the scripture references that he mentioned. 
I'm going to do a blog post. I'm going to put it all together, and I'm going to encourage all of you. I'm going to encourage uh, whoever reads the blog post to get a hold of a compact Bible, Old and New Testament, not just the New Testament, but Old and New Testament together, the whole Bible, because there are Old Testament and New Testament scripture references um, that Spencer points out, and then and then highlight, underline uh, those particular verses. And I'm going to show you a way to find those verses very quickly in your Bible. Um, and I want to encourage you to prepare a, a small, uh, handy-sized Bible uh, with scripture references in these five points so that at any moment you're ready to communicate the gospel to somebody and you can do it succinctly. You can uh, do it with a wealth of scripture. You could do it uh, with the person being able to look at the scripture and uh, you never again have to use as an excuse, I don't have enough scripture memorized. So I'm going to do that as, as soon as I can. Um, others have done this. I think of, I think of Bill Fay, a man I met, uh, a man who, uh, uh, who endorsed my first book, um, uh, Take Up the Shield, uh, a chaplain, a police chaplain who I met many years ago. He put together uh, a method, if you will, called Share Jesus Without Fear. Now, I, I don't agree with everything uh, in that little booklet he, he produced, but uh, as far as putting together a Bible so that uh, you can show, actually show the text to people and, and have in your hand uh, the gospel ready, uh, ready to proclaim that in a moment's notice, I think was very, very useful. And so it's going to be similar to that. I'm going to follow the, the, five, the five things that, uh, that uh, Spencer points out. Now, look. What the, the gospel that Spencer communicated to this woman was not an exhaustive gospel. Um, he didn't specifically mention the, the death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension, uh, and return of, of Christ. Uh, it, it's not an exhaustive theological treatise of the gospel, but there is enough information, there is enough of the gospel for it to be a gospel message that this dying, biblically uneducated woman can understand. Okay. Now, depending on what kind of questions the person might have, uh, you uh, you could certainly expand on any one of those five points. You could add points if, if you think that there are other points that are absolutely necessary in gospel proclamation. And so you, you can expand upon this, certainly. But, but the point of this is that here is a seasoned evangelist. Here is a seasoned pastor. Here is a man with, with a biblical worldview and is doctrinally sound, who with this dying woman said, you need to understand this, and you need to believe this. And it was short. I mean, the, that passage I read took less time than what I'm telling you about the, about the five things that he talked about. So this is a wonderful way. I was reading this, and I thought, this is it. This is, this is a, a wonderful way to succinctly communicate the gospel. All right. Back to Spencer. In an hour I returned, and I would make this the sixth point of a gospel presentation. In an hour I returned, determined to go over the same things and explain them if needful more fully. I just talked about that. So you proclaim the gospel, you proclaim these five points, you, you, you share these various scriptures with the person, and then you go back. Do you have any questions? Do you understand what I'm telling you? Is there anything that was unclear to you? 
Jan, what do you, uh, tell me more about repentance. Okay, let's go back and talk about that. So that's what Spencer did. Again, back to Spencer. As I entered the room, she looked at me with a gladsome smile and yet with an intense earnestness, which for an instant I feared was insanity. Said she, I am so glad you have come. I've been thinking of what you read to me. These things must be true, but I don't know that I should believe them if they were not in the word of God. I understand some of them. I know I am a sinner. I feel it. I never knew it so before. I have not loved God. I have been wicked and foolish. I am undone. And now when I know it, my heart is so bad that instead of loving God, it shrinks from him. I am afraid. It is too late for me. Yes, said I. Your heart is worse than you think. You can make it no better. Give it to God. Trust Christ to pardon all. He died for just such lost sinners. And here we pause again. Now, unbelievers would hear this and they would gasp. And maybe some professing Christians would gasp at what Spencer just said to this woman. Here she is. She she admits that she's a sinner. She admits that she's lost. She admits that she's far from God and her heart is even shrinking away from him as she realizes how wicked she is. And Spencer shows her no empathy at all. Praise God. He doesn't jump into the quicksand with her and say, there, there, there. No, you're not as bad as you think. You're a good person. He doesn't do that. Your heart is worse than you think, he says to her. Don't ease the burden, but with the cross of Christ alone. If you see someone under conviction for their sin, don't get uncomfortable, don't get squeamish, don't get all empathetic. Sympathize with them, have compassion with them by saying yes. And you're worse than you think. So am I. If you see, if you sense the Holy Spirit is working and bringing conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment, just as Scripture says, the Holy Spirit will, don't try to artificially or prematurely bring them out of that sorrow over their sin, over that conviction of sin, because you feel uncomfortable that you've made this person in front of you so uncomfortable. You're not doing that. If it's truly being done, the Holy Spirit is doing that. Leave them alone. Let them be convicted. They are worse than they think. You and I are worse than we think. And, and this is important too. Spencer says he died for just such lost sinners. What he didn't say is Jesus died for you. You don't know if Jesus died for that person. You don't know if that person is numbered among God's elect. You don't know that. I've had unbelievers, particularly um, antagonists on college campuses, I've listened to, to other people, other Christians preaching, saying, hey, Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. And I've heard the person say, great, Jesus died for me. I can live however I want. 
Great. Jesus died for the whole world. Great. Jesus died for his people. His atonement is definite. His atonement is particular. His atonement is not universal. Jesus shed his blood for his people and every one of his people, every one of God's elect will be saved. And so when you're talking to an unbeliever, it is more appropriate, more biblical to say, he died for just such lost sinners. He died for lost sinners. He died for wicked sinners. But try, if you can, avoid telling the person, the unbeliever, that he died for you because you don't know that. Encourage every believer with those words, hey, remember who died for you. When, when a, a, a genuine follower of Christ is, is struggling with assurance, remember, remind them of how Jesus died for them. In particular, he died for them. He died for his elect. He died. If you are a follower of Christ, if your faith is genuine, he died for you. That's so encouraging to the believer. But it could put false hope in an unbeliever. Picking up with the dying young woman. Yes, sir, I, I remember that. But what is it to believe? I do not, under, do not understand that thing. You said I must repent of sin and must believe in Jesus Christ. I think that I understand one of these things. To repent is to be sorry for my sin and to leave it. But what is it to believe? I cannot understand that. What is believing in Christ? It is trusting him to save you. It is receiving him as your own offered savior and giving yourself to him as a helpless sinner to be saved by his mercy. He died to atone for sinners. I believe that, for God's word says so. Is this all the faith that I must have? No, not at all. You must have more. You must trust him. You must receive him as your own savior and give yourself to him. Remember, my friends, the demons believe and tremble. Believing is not mere acknowledgement or intellectual assent. True belief, true faith is trusting Christ to save. Again with Spencer. You may remember the passage I read to you. Here it is in God's word. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You see that here believing and receiving express the same thing. You are to take Christ as God offers him to you, and you are to rely on him to save you. That is faith. Sir, I, I'm afraid I can never understand it, said she, the tears coursing over her pale cheek. Yes, you can. It is very simple. There are only two things about it. Take Christ for your own and give yourself to be his. Let's pause there too. Most professing Christians will do the first, but not the second. And that's what makes them a false convert. They will believe that they're taking Christ for their own, but they won't give themselves to him. 
They will say, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. But they will not give themselves to Christ. Spencer continues, sometimes these two things are put together in the Bible as when a happy believer says, my beloved is mine and I am his. It is union with Christ as if he were your husband and you were his bride. Oh, sir, it is all dark to me. Faith, I, I cannot understand it. See here, my dear child, if you were here on this island and it were going to sink, you would be in a sad condition if you could not get off. There would be no hope for you if you had no help. You would sink with the island. You could not save yourself. You might get down by the shore and know and feel the necessity of being over on the other side quickly before the island should go down. But you could not get there alone. There is a wide river betwixt you and the place of safety where you wish to go. It is so deep that you would not wade it. It is so wide and rapid that you could not swim it. Your case would be hopeless if there were no help for you. You would be lost. But there is a boat there. You see it going back and forth, carrying people over where they want to go. People tell you it is safe, and you have only to go on it. It seems safe to you as you behold it in motion. You believe it is safe. Now what do you do in such a case? You just step on board the boat. You do not merely believe it would save you if you were on it, but you go on it. You commit yourself to it. When you get on, you do not work or walk or run or ride. You do nothing but one. You take care not to fall off. That is all. You just trust to the boat to hold you up from sinking and to carry you over where you want to go. Just so, trust yourself to Jesus Christ to save you. He will carry you to heaven. Venture on him now. He waits to take you. Reading this uh, illustration that Spencer gives to this dying young woman reminds me of uh, a similar analogy uh, that Ray Comfort has used for many, many years, the parachute analogy. It's not enough simply to trust that the parachute will save your life if you have to jump out of the plane. You actually have to put the parachute on. Likewise, it's not enough to believe uh, that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. You have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to trust him. That when you, just like that parachute, you got to put it on. That parachute's useless to you under your seat. It means nothing to you. It's not going to help you until you actually put the parachute on. And so that when you jump out of the plane, trusting that it's going to open and you're going to land softly at 15, 20 miles per hour, whatever it is, and hit the ground without being injured. Now, this is important. This is very important. You've probably heard of this analogy before uh, of, you know, uh, Jesus is like a, a, a life preserver. And all you have to do is grab onto the life preserver. Okay, there's some truth to that, like in the parachute analogy. It's not enough just to believe that life preservers help people float. You actually have to grab onto the life preserver, right? Here's the problem. Here's the problem. In reality, the unbeliever's dead. The unbeliever's body is at the bottom of the ocean, dead, getting ready to be fish food. Unless, unless a grappling hook is thrown down, not a life preserver you can grab, but unless that body is hooked 
unless that body is hooked and drugged out of the water and life-saving measures are performed on that person, that person's dead, right? Only a living person can climb into the boat. Only a living person can grab onto the life preserver. And until God makes the person alive, until he regenerates that person, causes that person to be born again, they can't grab the life preserver. They can't climb into the boat. They can't trust Jesus because they are dead in their sin. They first must be made alive. They must be born again. And once God regenerates a person, they're not going to argue with the life preserver. They're not going to argue with the person who's the captain of the boat. They're going to climb into that boat. They're going to grab that life preserver because they trust the life preserver. They trust the boat. They trust the parachute to save them. Dead people can't do that for themselves. But if God makes a person alive, if God regenerates a person, if God causes a person to be born again, they will repent and they will believe and they will keep on repenting and they will keep on believing. The young lady says, but will he save such a wicked undone creature as I am? Yes, he will. He says he will. He came from heaven to do it, to seek and to save that which was lost. He invites you to come to him. I read it to you in his word. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May I go? Said she, her countenance indicating the most intense thought. And her eyes uh, suffused with tears of gladness and doubt fixing upon me as if she would read her doom from my lips. Yes, you may go to Christ. Come and welcome. Come now. Come just come just such a sinner as you are. Christ loves to save such sinners. She raised herself upon her couch and leaning upon her elbow with her dark locks falling over the snowy whiteness of her neck, her brow knit, her lips compressed, her fine eyes fixed upon me and her bosom heaving with emotion. She paused for a moment, said she, I do want to come to Christ. He wants you to come, said I. Will he take me, said she. Yes, he will, he says he will, said I. I am wicked and do not deserve it, said she. He knows that and died to save you, said I. Oh, I think I would come if God, if the Holy Spirit would help me. But my heart is afraid. I thought just now, if I only knew the way, I would do it. But now when you have told me, I cannot believe it. I cannot trust Christ. I never knew before what a distant heart I have. The Holy Spirit does help you. At this moment in your heart, he urges you to come to trust Christ. The Bible tells you to come. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. God lengthens the hours of your life that you may come while he says to you, behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. I paused for a little time. And as I watched her countenance, she appeared to be absorbed in the most intense thought. Her brow was slightly knit, her lips quivered, her fine eyes roamed from side to side and often upwards and then closed for a moment. And seeming utterly forgetful of my presence, she slowly pronounced the words with a pause almost at every syllable. Lost sinner, anger, God, Christ, blood, love, pardon, heaven, help, 
Bible, now, come. And then turning her eyes upon me, she said, I do not want to come to Christ and rest on him. I do rather, I do want to come to Christ and rest on him. If my God will accept such a vile sinner, I give myself to him forever. Oh, he will accept me by Christ who died. Lord, save me. I lie on thee to save me. She sunk back upon her bed with her eyes lifted to heaven, her hands raised in the attitude of prayer while her countenance indicated amazement. I knelt by her bed, uttered a short prayer, and left her to return at sunset. As I returned, the old Welsh woman met me at the door. Her eyes bathed in tears, her hands lifted to the heavens. I suppose she was going to tell me that the sick woman was dead, but with uplifted hand, she exclaimed, Bless be God, bless be God. The poor thing is happy now. She is so happy. Thank God she is so happy. She looks like an angel now. She has seen Christ her Lord, and she will be an angel soon. Now I can let her die. I, I can't stop weeping. She has been a dear creature to me, but it makes my heart weep for joy now when I see what God has done for her and how happy she is. She conducted me to her sick friend's room. As I entered, the dying woman lifted her eyes upon me with a smile. The Lord has made me happy. I am very happy. I was afraid. My wicked heart never would love God. He has led me to it. Christ is very dear to me. I can lean on him now. I, I can die in peace. I conversed with her for some minutes. The old lady standing at my elbow in tears. She was calm and full of peace. She said, all you told me was true. My heart finds it true. How good is Jesus to save such sinners? I was afraid to fall upon him, but I know now that believing is all. My heart is different. I do love God. Jesus Christ is very dear to me. She appeared to be fast sinking. I prayed with her and left her. The next day, she died. I visited her before her death. She was at peace. She could say but little, but some of her expressions were remarkable. She desired to be bolstered up in her bed that she might be able to speak once more. She seemed to rally her strength, and speaking with the utmost difficulty, the death gurgle in her throat and the tears coursing down her pale and still beautiful cheeks, she said, I wonder at God. Never was there such love. He is all goodness. I want to praise him. My soul loves him. I delight to be his. He has forgiven me, a poor sinner, and now his love exhausts me. The Holy Spirit helped me. Or my heart would have held to its own goodness and its unbelief. God has heard me. He has come to me, and now I live on prayer. Pardon me, sir. I forgot to thank you. I was so carried off in thinking of my God. He will reward you for coming 
to see me. I am going to him soon, I hope. Dying will be sweet to me, for Christ is with me. I said a few words to her, prayed with her, and left her. As I took her hand at that last farewell, she cast upon me a beseeching look, full of tenderness and delight, saying to me, May I hope you will always go to see dying sinners. It was impossible for me to answer audibly. She answered for me. I know you will. Farewell. She continued to enjoy entire composure of mind till the last moment. Almost her last words to the old lady were, My delight is that God is king over all and saves sinners by Jesus Christ. I called at the house after she was dead and proposed to the old lady that I would procure a sexton and be at the expense of her funeral. Lifting both her hands towards the heaven, she exclaimed, No, sir, indeed, no, sir. You wrong my heart to think of it. God sent you here at my call, and the poor thing has died in peace. My old heart would turn against me if I should allow you to bury her. The midnight thought would torment me. She has been a dear creature to me and died such a sweet death. I shall make her shroud with my own words, my own hands, rather. I, I shall take her ring money to buy her coffin. I shall pay for her grave. And then, as I believe her dear spirit has become a ministering angel, I shall hope she will come to me in the night. She had it all in her own way, and we buried her with a tenderness of grief, which I am sure has seldom been equal. If this was a conversion at all, it was a deathbed conversion. A suspicion or fear may justly attach to such instances, perhaps, and persons wiser than myself have doubted the propriety of publishing them to the world but the instance of the thief on the cross is published to us. And if the grace of God does sometimes reach an impenitent sinner on the bed of death, why should we greatly fear the influence of its true history? The wicked may indeed abuse it. And they abuse everything, as they abuse everything that is good and true. But it must be an amazingly foolish abuse if on account of a few such instances they are induced to neglect religion till they come to die. It is very rare that a deathbed is like this. I deemed it very important to convince her it was not too late to seek the Lord, and I found it a very difficult thing. The truth that it was not too late came into conflict with the unbelief and deceitfulness of her heart. It seems to me that we ought not to limit the Holy One of Israel leading sinners to believe that even a deathbed lies beyond hope. Truth is always safe. Error, never. And if there is good evidence of a deathbed conversion, why should it be kept out of sight? And yet it is no wonder that careful minds are led to distrust sickbed repentance. It seldom holds out. Manifestly, it is commonly nothing but deception. Health brings back the former impiety, or that which is worse. It does not appear that the dying thief knew anything about the Savior till he was dying, and this woman seems to have been like him. 
And what a lesson of reproof to Christians that this woman, living for 20 years among them and in the sight of five or six Christian churches, should never have been inside of a church in her life. And that nobody asked her to go. Year after year, she was in habits of intimacy with those who belonged to Christian families. She associated with the children of Christian parents. And yet she never had a Bible. She never read the Bible. She never was exhorted to seek the Lord. And probably she would have died as she had lived had not divine providence sent her in her poverty to be the tenant of the old lady who loved her so well. Oh, how many are likely to die soon with no old lady to bring them the Bible and pray for them in faith and love. Written over a century and a half ago, these closing words of Spencer are an indictment on American evangelicalism. They are an indictment on American evangelicals who will not, at the risk of a loss of convenience or position, will not open their mouth and communicate the gospel to lost and dying sinners. How many times have, have I been, have I been uh, excoriated by professing Christians while engaged in ministry on Christian campuses? And they say, well, we should just invite people to church, knowing full well they're not inviting anybody to church. And while inviting someone to church in and of itself isn't evangelism, are you inviting people to your church? Or are you ashamed of the gospel? Hmm? Are you embarrassed to have a co-worker sit beside you in church to hear your pastor proclaim the gospel? Are you embarrassed to, to have a, a friend from school come sit beside you in church because you're going to stand up and you're going to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth? Does that embarrass you? Then you are ashamed of the gospel. And you should be ashamed of yourself. Repent. Repent. God's grace is sufficient for you, Christian. Repent. And love God and love others more than you love yourself. Proclaim the gospel to lost and dying sinners. Well, I hope today's edition of the Bunyan of Brooklyn podcast has been an encouragement to you. If it has been, I'd, I'd love to hear that, see that in the comment section below. If if you are an unbeliever and happened upon this podcast and, and hearing the gospel proclaimed today, you have been brought to conviction. And if, like this dying young woman in this last story, there are things you do not understand, please email me. You can email me directly at thelawman, T-H-E-L-A-W-M-A-N-104, thelawman104 at gmail.com. And I will give you all the time you need to explain things more fully to you. Because I love you. And I want you to be with Christ. All right. I hope you all have a good day. And again, thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bunyan of Brooklyn podcast. Until next time, dear friends, God bless.